we got lucky, I'd say, to previous to this year. And it was pretty much inevitable on the way that we look at things that the pandemic, a pandemic of some sort, you know, was going to, uh, to hit us globally. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Leaders of B2B. I'm Ledge, one of your co hosts here. I'm a managing partner at Ad One Zero, where we provide lead to close execution for sales in uh, B2B companies. My guest today is Frank Schultz. He's the CEO and founder of Infinite Blue. Frank, welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks, Ledge. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. So for the audience you know, who doesn't know you, maybe not familiar with, with you and your work, why don't you give a little uh, introduction of yourself and uh, the company? Yeah, thank you. So my company again is Infinite Blue. And we've been in business a little over seven years now. Our primary focus is really operational risk, specifically business continuity and disaster recovery, planning software with incident management and response around that. Sounds complex. And uh, I laugh. My parents still, their comment is he works in computers. So what does that really mean? You know, we help organizations really of any size and, you know, could be a 300 person company with one office up to a multinational corporation plan for disasters and respond to them. So it could be anything from a traditional natural disaster like a hurricane or a flood where they want to make sure their employees are safe, their stores or their offices are able to be opened down to, you know, a cyber attack to, you know, really anything you can think that would impact a business from really performing its primary functions and serving its customers. So, so for example, a pandemic might be on your map. You know, uh, in our industry, we've been talking about pandemics for, uh, you know, for about 12 to 15 years now. You know, I think SARS, H1N1, these were things that were on our radar and we were trying to raise the alarm bell there that at some point it's going to, yep, it's going to cross cross uh, over into the U.S. We got lucky, I'd say, to previous to this year. And it was pretty much inevitable on the way that we look at things that the pandemic, a pandemic of some sort, you know, was going to uh, to hit us globally. So, I've been in the industry really about 16 years. I'm a product guy and a tech guy. I like playing with tech, but uh, you know, in my job, I like to uh, basically try and make tech actually have deliverable outcomes. So at home, I'll go tinker with stuff that maybe the project never turns into anything, but at work, it's you know, how do we take technology and not applaud it or use it for technology's sake? How do we take te technology and actually have some outcomes that are positive come out of it? kind of been my primary focus. And risk, if if I'm being honest as a business person, person is sort of a, a macro concept that I think we 
we all have this idea that risk happens and we ought to make plans for, you know, contingencies and wargaming and stuff. Virtually, I'll, I'll be honest, none of us had, you know, I, I've been through natural disasters. I've been through terrorist attacks, you know, the whole, like, I've had a pretty good run of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and pandemic never even crossed my radar. So I imagine that you've had a lot of novel conversations about, you know, wow, what, what could we have done differently? Is there a lot of soul searching about, <laughs> I guess, about that now? So. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, we do surveys with our customers and, you know, members in, in industry organizations for business continuity and disaster recovery. And, you know, we keep asking the same question. Do you feel like you were prepared? How do you feel like your response has been? I think it's a little over two thirds so that they necessarily weren't prepared really for the, the scope and the duration of the pandemic. So, you know, it's interesting. We have some customers, they're global organizations, they deal with disasters every day. And it could be a small disaster, you know, someone basically, you know, passed away in the parking lot of one of their buildings. That's a disaster, right? That's something they have to, that they have to deal with. It could be a flood that affects one of their offices. And then there's some customers that they're less frequent. So they have just a few locations, low, uh, less employees. How they deal with it, you know, is different based on every, every company. But when we look at business continuity and, and the pandemic and the preparation, it's the duration of the pandemic that I think is just really causing a lot of you know incident fatigue for everybody and how you prepare for that. Oh, that that's a different thing. That's a kind of a mental preparation, if you will, or, you know, kind of mental endurance. But, you know, when we look at business continuity, we kind of look at some major areas that impact people. And we think of it in terms of loss of staff, loss of facilities, loss of technology, loss of a critical third party vendor. And when you look at the pandemic, it really affects all of those. It, it really is pretty drastic, which organizations, you know, are really finding themselves having to pivot. And then there's even discussion today, what's the new normal? And so, you know, you hear that all the time, every day, what's the new norm? What's going to happen with travel? What's going to happen with offices? And it's interesting because, you know, at some point we have to say, let's stop managing the pandemic like a crisis. Let's manage it as a new level set. And what happens above that? Because I think, you know, there's been cyber attacks that have been reported, you know, that have been happening. That's happening regardless of the pandemic. There's other things, you know, there's, there's all kinds of other disasters that happened and we can't just be singularly focused on a pandemic, though it is a major, major impact. Right. Like huge disruption in the midst of what is effectively a collection of normal chaotic events. It's just like we can't deal with the normal chaotic events in the same way that we did before, because now we're hobbled with location issues and distributed issues and security issues. And so all the things are, are piled up. And I suppose that's a tad overwhelming for everybody. And risk assessment would depend upon holding some variable steady, or at least, you know, when you're trying to model and, and think about that, it, it feels like at this point that, you know, you can't, imagine anything is certain, you know, it's like change and uncertainty. We're sort of like, yeah, you know, buzzword and we would, you know, business is always changing and the pace of change is so fast. So it was like, now it's literally like, I cannot count on any variable being a constant and, and there's new variables that I didn't think of. So I guess from the software and solution side, is this all the same to you? Like, it's just a new category. Like, does, did it change anything? from the way you you all experts needed to think about this or is just sort of like, yeah, we told you so. 
you know, I would never say I told you so. Well, I know, I know. You know, because I think because it, it's interesting when you look at the evolution. And as I said, I've been in business continuity for about 16, almost 17 years. You know, when I started, we were teaching people, you know, think of every disaster in five different steps, you know, prevention, recovery, response, restoration, resumption. And you would go through kind of this methodology and then you would say, go ahead and run all that for a terrorist attack. Go ahead and run all that for a fire. Go ahead and run all that for a tornado. And the act of planning just got really heavy and burdensome. So there really were a lot of things that we told people to think about. And then we kind of cleaned it up a little bit from an industry perspective and said, you know what? Consider maximum impact. Consider ultimately that everything's gone. How do you come back from that? So you're, you know, you can't get into your building. There's no people in the building. You have no assets in the building. Now, what would you do? And plan from that perspective. And, but now today we have kind of interesting things that are happening because, you know, instead of business driving IT, IT really drives business, which affects the way that we have to plan and respond. You know, in business continuity, we think in terms of business processes, ultimately, and then the disaster recovery side thinks in terms of applications and services that we serve out to people. So when you focus everything around a business process, it's kind of interesting because processes don't fail. It's things that are supporting processes that fail. So either the people can't come into work or the application's not available or you, know, you can't get a hold of your customer because the communication's down. So you have to kind of think of it a little differently, but then everything is so interconnected and we're also sending a whole lot more out to external vendors. So if you talk to people, who's your email provider? And you would have asked them 10 years ago, they would have said, we hosted inside, you know, most companies, right? We have a, an exchange server or Lotus Notes or, you know, whatever. Now you ask and you're going to get the answer. It's either Office 365 or it's Google, right? So when you look at, you know, some of the impacts that can happen there, how do you plan for that? So, you know, definitely things change more quickly. I don't know that, you know, when, when I look at the industry and we kind of look at where we're going, I think the ability to be very fluid in responding is probably the most important thing. And the other thing to think about is I said, kind of the duration of the pandemic, how do we, when we think about things in, in terms of crisis management, how do we think about things that really run a longer course? Because it's not, you know, business continuity or disaster recovery isn't necessarily set up for something to kind of run that long. There's some, and there's also a drive to say, let's get back to normal. And the normal of, you know, nine months ago or 10 months ago might not be the same normal we want to get back to. So I think there's some conflict there. And uh, we have to kind of think about, like, what are we really trying to achieve in getting back to whatever, you know, quote unquote normal is? Right. I think none of us, except maybe you guys in your industry, had even the slightest inkling that, you know, we ought to be wargaming for this. And we would... We would do analog things that actually were pretty useful. You know, well, what if all the clients went out of business? We didn't know why, but you know, so if you were if you're doing smart planning, you could kind of think about cash flow management and system management, and you know what would be up or not up. Those of us who were remote businesses before certainly got a boost. You know, and, and sort of saying, yeah, we already know how to run our systems. You know, in the cloud and remotely, and and selling things on Zoom. You know, people. It just as as late as. You know, November last year, I was getting, you know, rejected by potential clients. Oh, you can't sell what we do on Zoom. So, you know, again, I, I wouldn't say I told you so, but uh, there are some calls coming in. They're going, uh, hey, I remember that conversation. We had. Uh, how do you sell things on Zoom? <laughs> so, you know, so that's happening. But yeah, I don't I don't think there's any idea of this new normal, really, because the way I've been thinking about it is like you'd have to be a complete idiot 
to now make any business plan, any contingency plan, have any thought process whatsoever that did not allow for the potential incidence of, of this type of thing happening again. So for the next 50 years, every business plan is going to be different. And so it's, it's literally impossible and would be honestly, I think that's what maybe you're saying, is just be dumb to go back to the way you were before because it basically be like, oh, good, we're done. Let's put our head back in the sand. Yeah, we can't do it. You know, you definitely can't do it. Um, the, the, you know, I, I like to think those of us that traveled a lot and I put up, I think, last year, 135,000 miles on a plane at some point and, and American Airlines called me at the beginning of the year to make sure I was OK. And I thought they were trying to sell me something. So, you know, when you travel, I don't know that I'll travel that much again in the future. But in the same regard, I think a lot of us are yearning for FaceTime and it's something that's hard to replicate, you know, and I think that's going to probably bring leaders and executives back into the office. I don't know what, you know, true office restoration looks like for people to go back in. It definitely, I think people have found a way to be more efficient working from home. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it can be hard if you're at home and your, your spouse, significant others at home, your kids are at home. How do you get a quiet space or quiet time to kind of work? And, you know, it's funny you think about the, uh, I believe it was a professor on BBC a couple of years ago is, you know, as one kid walked in kid, and that yeah. was big news, right? You know, and, and the wife came, pulled the kid back and everyone laughed at it. And now you're like, this happens every day. So there's yeah. definitely, yeah. There's definitely a pivot there, you know, from just a how we work perspective. But, you know, when you think of business continuity too, you know, we're in offices and we think in terms of things like, does the building have a generator? How many lines do you have to the internet and what are the you know connection speeds and you know what would you do if this building went out? Well, now we have everyone at home. So it's kind of interesting. I, I think we as a country seem to have generally fared pretty good at pushing people out to remote work at the start of this pandemic, except I heard a couple stories of people taking desktops off the desk and telling people to take them home and then they can't log in because they're not there's no domain controller at home. Um, that happened, but, you know, I think we did okay. And and from our customers, we did okay there, but you know, are we going to bring the, are we going to bring those systems back? But then if someone works from home, you know, do we think in terms of do, does our employee have a generator at home? Does our employee have two broadband connections? You know, what if they can't do their job anymore? What's their alternate plan? So Mm -hmm. it really starts to put an interesting lens on business continuity specifically, because how do we ensure that our employees can continue to work? We have a duty to help them continue to work, but now they're at home, which is a whole other issue that I don't know that anyone knows how to essentially solve yet. Or the solution would be we go to another office or, hey, we have a you know a cold site that we go and rent, which is basically a, a room with a bunch of desks and some Internet connectivity they can turn on. Or we go to the hotel. You know, we, we have a contract with a hotel. We can go into the conference space and we go and work there. None of that is going to work today. You know, so it's just kind of yeah. interesting to see. How you, how you, uh, yeah, I mean, co-working ish, but it's different. And yeah, you're right. And, you know, basically now any single point on the, the network or any node can go down just because like the local internet is down and some key employee may just not be able to get on today and has nothing to do with you or which, so it, it might be the same way as if there was a local traffic accident and, you know, people couldn't get to work or, so it's just like, you have different metaphors all around. And then Forget about cybersecurity where, you know, now virtually everything is a threat vector and you know, I don't want, don't want to be doing that now. So Yeah. Cyber is a mess. I mean, let me, let me, now, you know, we always think in terms of 
from a cyber perspective, kind of casting the net, you know, what's, or are you thinking in terms of firewalls, what's inside and what's outside, right? What's trusted, what's not. And there's been a strong push to zero trust for a while now, which is interesting. Um, but, you know, you just look at what's happening now. Does the net extend to your home? We had, we had an interesting example, you know, our, one of our antivirus systems, which, you know, comes back with a central alert if something is ever picked up on an employee. And we had an alert from an employee working from home. And uh, basically said, what happened? It's like, oh, well, it scanned everything it could on his network because it was trying to be kind of a good antivirus citizen, found something on his son's computer that didn't look right and reported it back to us because it was a public share on the computer. So what's my, you know, what's the responsibility then? You know, do we have to tell an employee to isolate their network? Do we have to, you know, what do you do? And we've taken security precautions around that too. But in the same regard, you start to think about that employee's home network now as part of, you know, something that we have to think about either managing or excluding. Because if the employee laptop opens up the share and, you know, it it hops across the music share or like somebody double clicks the file across the network, yeah, it's, it's open there. So you... Mm -hmm. But then you have, you know, sort of exactly how big is the net. And so you have the kind of privacy issues and and the whole thing. And God bless you if you need to configure everybody's internet router from every ISP known to man. So like, that'll exactly right. I mean, and there's some reliance fun. that people can get that set up right, that they're secure. I can never know, get it. I, I know this stuff and I can't get mine to work right. So. <laughs> yeah. I, and part of it, you know, how many employees are using open networks with no, um, no key, you know, you just, are you going to ask that? Right. So now is that part of your, we, we do business impact analysis or BIAs. <laughs> is that part of your BIA now to go and ask, you know, is your home network secured? Can you are imagine those big, get, like a third party risk survey? Exactly. Those third party things that you fill out when you sign yeah. a vendor now, or it's like, you know, let's do your security and i like, <laughs> Yeah. So what do you do? And, and, and look, I mean, we started, you started asking about risk. Yeah. It's all about risk tolerance at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, we all, we all day to day, whether you really think about it or not, we all basically think, is that an acceptable risk or not? Yeah. Is it something we're worried about or, or not? Sometimes we don't know it until it happens. That's not great, but you know, you'll learn from what happens, but what's our acceptable risk? Uh, you know, the whole, this, this, we went through a lot of this years ago, you know, you look at the iPhone when it became more of an enterprise device, you know, it's been out for 13 years now. And, and it's interesting, you know, because then it became an enterprise device probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little, little more, but what's BYOD, you know, we went through BYOD policy. So yeah, how like much of you, you know, bring your own office, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Bring your own everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, and I think you're right. That, we just were accelerated into a curve that probably would have happened in the next 10 years anyway, because it does make ultimately fiscal sense for companies just to sort of not have a lot of physical assets space. You know, it's just like, it was going to go there, but we just got thrust, you know, a decade ahead. And, you know, everybody in business is trying to figure out, you know, so many things. If there's anything none of us like, it's uncertainty. Uh, So it's been a fun year, you know, for that. So tell Tell your founder story. You know, I sort of, you've been doing this seven years. You know, what, what was your career path like? And maybe give me, give me the background story to what got you here. Yeah, kind of interesting. So I went to college. I really wanted to be in television and went to uh, Syracuse for television, radio and film. Had done in my senior year of high school, a coast to coast satellite uplink that I coordinated with actually Lisa Ling was one of the interviewees that we had back before she was really well known and kind of interesting. So I thought I wanted to do that 
really got introduced to a professor that ran a policy studies department cool. who's still teaching, Professor Copeland. And he got me more involved in kind of, you know, I've always been in tech on the side. He got me involved with the Boys and Girls Clubs of Syracuse to kind of do some nonprofit work. And, you know, it was interesting, did their IT on the side, graduated with a dual major. People in my industry were getting jobs with Anderson Consulting at the time with really good high signing bonuses, really good salaries. And um, Enron was not kind to Anderson. So, you know, that that was gone by the time I uh, graduated. And I went into IT because it's kind of what I knew, you know, which was interesting. So I've been in software ever since I graduated, worked for a mortgage software company and wanted to travel. And it just so happened I took a job at a company called Stroll Systems right outside Philadelphia here. That job had 80% travel, wanted to see the world, got to see every state. I think I have five left that I haven't seen. And really just got into business continuity there. And they were the leader in the industry at the time, really learned a lot, learned how to present, learned how, you know, to be 23 and be in a room with corporate executives with C-level titles in their names at Fortune 500 companies, but not look like I was 23 with, you know, four or five months experience on the job, training them how business continuity worked. And, you know, worked there for a couple of years, got into product management and really became more more of a tech product focused guy at the end of the day. From there, I went to two different startups that were also in business continuity, which is pretty interesting. So, you know, my whole journey, I'll say, and at one point worked for a management consulting company for about a year and took a step back. When I took a step back, I consulted with one of my my now competitors to go have them go build on another platform. So I created future competition for myself. But, you know, all of it really taught me a lot of interesting things. And, you know, started this company seven and a half years ago and really thought to myself, I saw a lot of things that worked really well. And I've seen a lot of things that I don't want to be a part of, you know, that that I don't love. And, and you know, and as an employee, it's not something that, you know, I, I might want to be a part of. So, you know, I try to gauge a lot of that learning. And when we started the company, it was it was me and a partner. And, you know, it was interesting. We hired our first employee couple months in and and grew from there. And, you know, I always had this feeling if I treat my employees well, they'll treat my customers well and my customers will refer other customers. And, you know, I I think it worked, you know, our as a SaaS company, I mean, our retention rates about 97% since we started. So, you know, we've grown kind of slowly with a really strong foundation. And, you know, we built a product that I thought we were building a mid-market product when we started and we started to get some pretty big companies that, you know, it was pretty surprising in the beginning. It's been a pretty interesting story for sure. So, you know, now we basically have offices outside of Philadelphia. We have a second office in Hyderabad, India. And, you know, we've really kind of have an interesting and people spread out around around the U.S., but a pretty interesting kind of business where our apps for business continuity and resiliency primarily have a North American focus today. And our platform primarily has a global focus mm-hmm. for a low-code platform. So it's a very interesting mix of geography and customers for sure. Wow, cool. And you you did make it, I saw, into the the sales arena as as many of us do from from technology. Yep. I suspect that a reasonable portion of your founder and executive job is on the, the sales side too. What would you what would you say that, that journey was like and the you know, so the key learnings there? Mm-hmm. You talked about the cultural side, which I think is great, you know, treat your employees well and they're gonna treat your customers well presume then you you played a big role probably in getting the customers and probably still do to this this day how's how's that look as you scale up yeah it's interesting i mean in the beginning 
I can say I've done every job that we have here at some point. So, you know, we're right now in our third office as we continue to grow. First office, yeah, I, I scrubbed the toilets, I stocked the fridge, I took the trash out. You know, it's, you, you do anything you have to do. You know, you're on a sales call, you go to a customer visit, and then you come back and scrub the toilet in the office. So, but you do what you got to do. You're right. I mean, my background between being a product manager, you know, if you said, what's, what's kind of your second area you've worked in, it's a sales engineer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both of those are how do I make a product that's a really good market fit, but also how do I make the product dance when somebody basically says, hey, I want it to do this. And so one role is, yeah, I'll make it do whatever you want. And one role is, yeah, we're not really going to go there because that's not a great place for the product to go to. So it's an interesting push and pull in my mind. But, you know, from a sales perspective, early on, even to now, you know, I've, I'm definitely involved less as we get bigger because I'm not kind of on the front lines as much anymore. But, you know, I really do appreciate my time with customers. I have to say, like, the best thing I love about our company, and, and you may hear this a lot, but I love our team and I love our customers. And we do a user group conference that we get people together every year. And, and, you know, we canceled this year because of COVID, but we did a virtual session later in the year. And just the, the camaraderie and just the, the passion and just the energy that comes out of getting either, even our employees together, but our employees with our customers, that's like the coolest thing for me. And, you know, so being in sales and, and, you know, I always want to kind of go back and say like, Hey, let me call that customer up. Hey, I want to go visit that person. Hey, let's, let me go to this trade show because you just get, I get a lot of energy out of it. You know, I always think in terms of what drains you and what gives you energy, Yeah. you know, playing with tech and going out and talking with customers definitely give me energy. And if I can do both together and, you know, show them how our products help them, that's really cool. Yeah. Right on. I love that. Yeah. You just talked about integrating all the major, you know, pieces of the different types of people and stakeholders. And, and then I love that, that push and pull of being product or, you know, or in some cases, like in a service business, it'd be like operations versus sales, you know, and, and what a, a strong cultural bond you have to have. So your salespeople are not selling impossible things. And when they are asked and, to sell impossible things, they can come back and have a good relationship with the people who do product and delivery. And, you know, hey, can we push the envelope a little bit in this way? I know that's not on the roadmap. I know we didn't really plan it this way, but this is a pretty big deal, you know, and can we can we think about that? And then do you fork the product just for like special customers? Or do you not do that? And, and I did a whole video series about this exact thing is like, how should salespeople answer when they know the product roadmap is sort of one way and the customer or the prospect really wants it to go a different way. And how do you, how do you handle that objection up front? And then how do you properly deal with that, you know, on the backside? And so much of that is that interpersonal and, and cultural just respect of uh, you might have to walk away from a, a huge payday that mm-hmm. just isn't the right payday. And I like, that you know that because I think if you've been on the implementer side and on the selling side, maybe you can instill that into your culture as well. Yeah, I've definitely tried. There's multiple times that I've been, you know, at a trade show talking to a prospect at our booth and they want something that maybe we don't do or we don't do well. And it could be specific or it could be something where they say, hey, you know, I'm very limited by budget, you know, and it's kind of like, well, what are you trying to achieve? So I always, you know, I I think and I train my team to kind of think in terms of business terms and and outcomes. Right. So, you know, if someone says I really need this feature, 
the question might be, what are you actually trying to solve? You know, we get, I need a button. I need a button that does this. Well, what are you actually trying to do? But then at trade at the trade shows, someone will come up and they'll say something. And I, you know, my response typically is, look, there's a fit for everybody at this show on this floor from a vendor perspective. You know, I really hope it's us, but it might not be us. And, you know, if it's not us, like where's the gap or what can we get to, you know, because go work with that vendor because they may be the best one for you today. I'm hoping we're the best one for you when you come off your contract, you know, and, and, but it's okay. As you said, you know, we have to, you know, we have to not take everything and say yes to everything. And I think, you know, that leads to our higher retention rate because if we said yes to everything, you know, churn would be a lot higher. You know, I just, I I like kind of building something that's consistent works with our customers. And we really have a really focused product management practice that, you know, I just doubled my resources in product management because I'm such a huge believer in it and the whole process behind it. And we listen to our customers, but we also listen to the industry. You know, and if a customer or prospect says, I really need this and we come back and it just happened this morning with one of my product managers, you know, a salesperson and the sale and, and head of sales came to her and said, we really need this feature in this product. You know, the customer, the prospect's not going to sign if we don't have it. And she said, what, what should I do? You know, and I said, well, where is it on your roadmap? You know, because I think, you know, if we can't earn the trust of the prospect by saying, it's on the roadmap. We think it's in the second quarter. Here's what it is. Or let's set up 30 minutes so I can understand what you're really looking for to make sure it fits. If they don't trust us to either get there, then they might not be a good fit for us right now. Right. And that's that's hard to say to your sales team that's trying to, you know, really capture they have revenue targets. But, you know, again, I think a healthy push and pull of having a really good product management process against some a team that has revenue targets. And then you kind of have, you know, marketing and product management in the in the middle or in the mix there with customer success. You know, it's really a good healthy push and pull. Right. And as long as you have the healthy culture that facilitates that and and hey, we're all in this together and there's one objective. And I think that it sounds like that you do that that integration. So before we wrap, you know, I don't know what's what's next. You know, maybe not yay 2020 is over and you know that type of vibe, but where do you see your company and your space going, you know, as as you look forward? Well, I'll just say I don't think the turn of the calendar year is going to really change anything. So I think I'll give up any false hope on that, although 2020 has been a crazy year. You know, I I think when I look at it, business continuity probably isn't is an antiquated term when you think of it that way, you know, because what's the definition really of business and what's the definition really of continuity? So what are we really trying to protect and what are we really trying to do as a result of that? And, and you know, with the the working landscape and the work environment shifting so much, you know, we have to think in terms of almost asset preservation, you know, so when we look at our employees and our IP and our products and our customers as assets and our revenue streams, how do we really, you know, align the protection of that and come up with a plan that we can pivot on in any regard. So, you know, I think business continuity needs, you know, really a a revolution in a way as far as how we think about things and disaster recovery. You know, the other thing I think of, there's there's a, a thought process related to what we do and, and in a parallel or a, or neighboring industry called critical event management. And the whole process is set up just to look at critical events and figure out when the big thing happens, what do you do? But how do you know what the big thing is? Everything, things happen all day, all day, every day. 
even on weekends when we're not really working that affect our business. So how do you take those activities and make sure that you're tracking it and know what the potential kind of larger impact could be? We have to look at every event and figure out if it's critical. We can't just look at the critical ones. So I think those two things, when I look at it, you know, there's, there's definitely things we can do with today's technology and the way that people are working to really help organizations be more resilient no matter what hits them. Yeah, it's like event discernment. So, I mean, immediately my brain goes to, oh, good, you know, we're going to train machine models to predict the the future and then there's going to be AIs that know what's going to happen next Tuesday and we'll be good to go. So uh, <laughs> if we could get the weather forecast down, then maybe we I would believe part of that. But, uh, right, right. you know, you, you just look at it and you, yeah, you, you kind of say, what's the informed decision look like? versus the gut check, because there's definitely a place for the gut check. There's definitely a place for the informed decision and looking at kind of historical historical outcomes. Well, Frank, thanks for spending time with us. I love this stuff. Super interesting. I hope the audience does as well. Anybody wants to talk to you about you know your expertise in, in Infinite Blue, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, if they just want to go to infiniteblue.com, there's contact us on there or frank at infiniteblue.com. They can send me an email and uh, and reach out directly. I'm super happy to talk to anybody that is interested and uh, wants to talk tech or business continuity. And thanks again, Ledge. I really appreciate you know the time today. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.